Okay. Okay, so I'll use the speakers. So it's March 29, 2011 in Hawaii. And we're going to be reading from Bhagavatam 1846. Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjabihari Jaya Radha Madhava Kunjabihari Gobi Janabalaba Girivarada Gopi Janna Balama Kirivara Dari Yasodanandana Brajajana Randana Jamuna Vishnupad, Paramahamsa, Parivrajagacharya, Asatara, Satyashri, Srimadis, Divine Grace, Sri Bhakti, Vedanta, Swami, Maharaj, Prabhupada, Ki Jai, Iskand, Founder, Acharya, Srila, Prabhupada, Ki Jai, Anantakoti, Vaishnava, Rinda, Ki Jai, Namacharya, Srila, Haridas, Thakur, Ki Jai, Prem, Shrikaho, Shri Krishna, Chaitanya, Prabhu, Nityananda, Shri Adoita, Gadadhar, Shri Vasadi, Gaur, Bhakti, Rinda, Ki Jai, Shri Shri Radha Krishna Go Gopina Shaima Kunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhana Ki Jai Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai Mathura Dhamma Ki Jai Nabhadrit Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai Ganga Maya Jamuna Devi Ki Jai Bhakti Devi Ki Jai Tulsi Maharani Ki Jai Samaveta Bhakti Vrinda Ki Jai Gaur Premanande All glories to the assembled devotees all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimate Bhaktivedanta Swami Nitinamani Namaste Sarasvati Deve Gauravani Vacharani Nirvasesa Sunivani Vaskachade Sadarani 
Mandeham Shri Guru Shri Yuta Padakamalam Shri Gurun Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatam Bidam Sam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Deva Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Bidamscha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Girls, let's wrap it up. So we're reading from Canto 1, okay, Chapter 8, Prayers by Queen Kunti and Parikshit Save, Text 46. Yasajar Ishvare Hanjai Krishnanadbhuta Karmana Prabodito Pi Piti ha sire. sucharpita. Vyasa adjay. You want to. Oh, okay. Vyasadhyar Ishvare Hagnai. Vyasadhyar Ishvare Hagnai. Krishnena Dbhuta Karmana. Krishnena Dbhuta Karmana. Prabodito Piti Hasair. Na bhutyata sutarpita. Na bhutyata sutarpita. Vyasadhyayar Ishvare Hagnai. Vyasadhyayar Ishvare Hagnai. Krishnanad Bhuta Karmana. Prabodito piti ha Nabhutyata sutarpita. Krishna 
By great sages headed by Vyasa. Ishvara. The Almighty God. Iha. By the will of. Gnai. By the learned. Krishnena by Krishna himself Adbhuta Karmana by one who performs all superhuman work Prabodhita being solaced Api although Itihasahai by evidences from the histories. Na, not, adbhutyata, satisfied, sucha arpitaha, distress. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. King Yudhisthira, who is much aggrieved, could not be convinced, despite instructions by great sages headed by Vyasa and the Lord Krishna himself, the performer of superhuman feats, and despite all historical evidence. Purport. The pious king Yudhisthira was mortified because of the mass massacre of human beings in the battle of Kurukshetra, especially on his account. Duryodhana was there on the throne, and he was doing well in his administration. And in one sense, there was no need of fighting. But on the principle of justice, Yudhisthira was to replace him. The whole clique of politics centered around this point, and all the kings and residents of the whole world became involved in this fight between the rival brothers. Lord Krishna was also there on the side of King Yudhisthira. It is said in the Mahabharata Adiparva 20, that 640 million men were killed in the 18 days of the Battle of Kurukshetra, and some hundreds of thousands were missing. Practically, this was the greatest battle in the world within 5,000 years. This mass killing simply to enthrone Maharaj Yudhisthira was too mortifying, so he tried to be convinced with evidences from histories by great sages like Vyasa and the Lord himself that the fight was just because the cause was just. But Maharaj Yudhisthira would not be satisfied. 
even though he was instructed by the greatest personalities of the time. Krishna is designated herein as the performer of superhuman actions, but in this particular instance, neither he nor Vyasa could convince King Yudhisthira. Does it mean that he failed to be a superhuman actor? No, certainly not. The interpretation is that the Lord as Ishvara, or the Supersoul, in the hearts of both King Yudhisthira and Vyasa, performed still more superhuman action because the Lord desired it. As Supersoul of King Yudhisthira, he did not allow the king to be convinced by the words of Vyasa and others, including himself, because he desired that the king hear instructions from the dying Dev, who was another great devotee of the Lord. The Lord wanted that at the last stage of his material existence, the great warrior Dev see him personally and see his beloved grandchildren, King Yudhisthira, etc., now situated on the throne, and thus pass away very peacefully. Dev was not at all satisfied to fight against the Pandavas, who were his beloved fatherless grandchildren, but the Kshatriyas are also very stern people, and therefore he was obliged to take the side of Duryodhan, because he was maintained at the expense of Duryodhan. Besides this, the Lord also desired that King Yudhisthira be pacified by the words of Dev, so that the world could see that Dev excelled all in knowledge, including the Lord himself. Vyasa Jair Ishre Hangnai, Krishnan Adbhuta Karmana, Prabodita Pitiha Sire, Nadbhudyata Sucharpitaha. King Yudhisthira, who was much aggrieved, could not be convinced despite instructions by great sages headed by Vyasa and the Lord Krishna himself, the performer of superhuman feats, and despite all historical evidence. So, So here we have two situations that occur to everyone. That we do something and later on we regret it. We do something, we're thinking this will be something good, it will be something that I want to do, and then later on we think, why did I do such a terrible thing? I'm a horrible person. What I've done is, is horrible. And I have done it for no profit. I've caused so much harm to others. And sometimes that happens just with one other person. We'll say something, we'll do something, and the other person is in pain. And then we just regret, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Now I've caused pain to someone else. There was no good purpose. And we'll often look at our heart and say, well, I was just selfish, or I was just envious, or I was just greedy, or we see the bad qualities in ourselves and we berate ourselves. And sometimes in that condition also, that no matter what we hear, no matter what we read, we remain unpacified. We remain in a lamenting position. So that from an external point of view, that's what appears is happening to King Yudhisthira. And what he's done in magnitude is something beyond what any of us ever lament about. That he feels personally responsible for the death of 640 million people. So that's more than double the population of America at the present time. That's a, a huge amount of people. It's, it's practically inconceivable 
I mean, in the Vietnam War, the American casualties were 57,000 over a period of years. And you're talking about double the population of America in a period of 18 days. So as Prabhupada says here, that this was the greatest battle within 5,000 years, and we'd, we'd have to agree that we don't have our world wars don't compare to this, that this amount of casualties in such a short time. I mean, we do have some very short wars, like there was a six-day war in Israel. We don't have this amount of casualties. And for that number of people to be killed, and here it's saying 640 million men, and of course, you know, when Prabhupada wrote the scripture, when Prabhupada wrote his translations and purports, the way English was used was that men meant human beings. But in this case, it does specifically mean men. So that means that there were a lot of people who'd lost their husbands or their sons or their fathers. You had a lot of unprotected women, which was exactly what Arjuna was worried about. And then Yudhisthira's thinking, well, what was the point of killing all these people? Killing all these people and causing great distress for the remainder of the world just to make me the king. And Yudhisthira, as Prabhupada is explaining here, was thinking, well, Duryodhan wasn't a bad king. And from many points of view, Duryodhan wasn't a bad king. He was a very charitable person. He was very, as explained elsewhere in the Bhagavad Gita, he was a very expert politician. He wasn't, uh, you couldn't say that he was just useless, nor do we read of Duryodhan as engaging in horrific acts against the citizens, just like there are modern governments where the leaders are torturing and killing their own citizens. And we can think about what happened with Stalin in Russia or what Idli Amin did in Uganda. And there's modern governments like that also where the government is engaging in systematic torture and killing of segments of the population. I think Stalin personally was responsible for the deaths of 100,000 people, of his own countrymen. But we don't find this sort of accounts of Duryodhana. You know, again, in the modern day, sometimes other governments will intervene if there's some despot who's torturing and killing their own citizens, then sometimes the other governments of the world will take over and say, you know, this, is, this can't go on. In fact, that, that happened in Krishna's time with Jarasandar. Jarasandar was such a king. And, of course, Kamsa was also such a king who was torturing and harassing his own citizens for no purpose. And so in both of those cases, we find that there was some other person who comes in, Krishna in the case of Kamsa and Bhishma and Yudhisthira in the case of Jarasandar, that says, wait a minute, you're not fit to run a kingdom. And especially that was the job of the emperor, that if there was some king who was acting immorally, that you take that kingdom away from that person and most likely kill that, that king. But we don't find such accounts in the case of Duryodhana. And Duryodhana wasn't an evil king in that sense. So Maharaj Yudhisthira is thinking, why fight? As Prabhupada says, in one sense there was no need of fighting. How is this a righteous war? I think most people understand that, say, World War II against Hitler was a righteous war, that whatever pain and suffering happened in the war was far better than what the world would have had to experience had Nazism been the primary means of government within the world. But in this case, it wasn't so clear. Of course, Duryodhan really was harming the citizens, although he wasn't going out on a rampage of massacre. He was harming the citizens because he was a demon. He was intrinsically uh, opposed to the Lord. 
And because of that, he wasn't using the wealth of the kingdom and he, in, in sacrifice for Vishnu, nor was he directing the citizens to progress in spiritual life. And that is the greatest violence. A violence against someone's body is very serious. Violence against a person's emotions, psychological violence, in some ways you could say is more serious. It's more detrimental. You can be cured from a broken arm, but if you go through psychological trauma, it can be hard to heal your whole life. And the worst trauma is to impede someone spiritually. That's trauma against the real self. So that was the kind of trauma that Duryodhana was doing. He was a, a very atheistic, demoniac person. His whole view of the world was twisted and distorted. And when your leader has a twisted and distorted view of the world, the citizens are going to find it very difficult to make progress. Obviously, it's possible. It's possible to attain spiritual perfection even if your leader is a demon. However, it's very difficult, and only the most determined and serious people will do it. And therefore, Duryodhana should not have been the king. And it was worth the deaths of all those people and the sufferings of all those people in order to have a king who was going to lead people on the right path, an emperor, not just a king, but an emperor, because Yudhisthira was ruling the world. And again, just like we will look at all the suffering uh, that happened fighting against Nazi Germany and say it was worth it. It was worth it. If we had a rule today, a world today ruled by such people, then the, the cost of the lives and the suffering and the destruction of cities against the pain of a world ruled by Nazis is a good deal. So Krishna also saw it like this. And of course, there's many other purposes going on. Everybody has to die. And Krishna decides when it's time for people to die, and he may kill people all at once. Krishna can be efficient like that. If everyone's karma to die has, happens at the same time, he may put them all together and kill them at the same time. So that's one thing that Maharaj Yudhisthira's struggle and sacrifice and the pain was actually worth it. But somehow he got in this illusion that it was for himself. He got in this illusion that all this killing was for him personally. That it was really a question that, well, Pandu was king and therefore his son should be king and really Dhritarashtra shouldn't have been king. I mean, that's not so important. You know, if the king is a good king, even if he got there in the wrong way and even if he violated ethics to get there, it's not worth killing 600 million people just for the sake of following protocol. Just like Bhishma, he would have been the king and he was willing to give that up. Protocol isn't that important. So Yudhisthira's thinking, just for the sake of protocol and just because I was the proper heir, and that wasn't really what was going on. That wasn't the actual situation. But Yudhisthira couldn't see things as they were. And Prabhupada uses the word interpretation. You know, that, he, that, that Yudhisthira was interpreting things. He was interpreting things in a way that was causing him grief. So this is basically the situation of all of us in this world. We are all, all of us, all of our grief, all of our anxiety, all of our suffering, every bit of it, 100%, is due to misinterpretation of reality. We're looking at things in the world and we're interpreting them in such a way as to understand them differently from what they actually are, and therefore we suffer. That's the definition of maya. I see things for what they are not. 
I don't see things as they are in reality. How are things in reality? As Krishna sees them. As Krishna sees them. Krishna sees everything for everyone's ultimate good. And Maya, or wrong interpretation, is when I see things in terms of me and my sense gratification and my desires and my needs and I'm calculating from a material point of view. And when we do that, sometimes we're happy and sometimes we're miserable. Now, generally, what's particularly interesting here is that generally the way that we get out of illusion is that we hear instructions from a proper source. But I think we've also all had experience that we're suffering, we're in illusion, and we go to a proper source, we hear from the proper source, and still our illusion is not dispelled. So Krishna explains in the fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Tadvidi praniprashnena pariprashnena sevaya upadekshati te gyanam gyaninas tatvidarshinaha. Tatvidarshinaha, because a saintly person sees the truth. Tatva is truth, darshan is to see. They don't just know the truth, they see it, they experience it. Therefore, they can help you. And Krishna says that after you hear this truth from a self-realized person, you'll no longer be an illusion. Your illusion will be finished. But yet we find that that doesn't always happen. That's not always our experience. Right? It says, having obtained real knowledge from a self-realized soul, you will never again fall into such illusion. For by this knowledge you will see that all living beings are are but part of the supreme, or in other words, that they are mine. You will see Krishna everywhere. For one who sees me everywhere and sees everything in me, I am never lost to him, nor is he ever lost to me. But we do find sometimes, we pick up the scripture, we listen to one of Prabhupada's lectures, we go to some senior devotee, we sit down and chant, and we still feel miserable. We're still just lamenting. We're still thinking, what a terrible person I am. What a terrible mistake that I've made. How horrible. Life is just terrible. I never get anything right. And this also happened to Yudhisthira. In fact, it happened to Yudhisthira with Krishna himself and Vyasadeva. Sometimes when we continue to be unhappy, we think, well, maybe there's something wrong with the scripture. Maybe there's something wrong with the holy name that Although I'm, I'm reading the scripture, I'm still despondent. But here, Maharaj, you Krishna himself talked to him and said, this is the reason, this is why it happened, this is what's going on. And still, Maharaj, you was despondent. He was not only despondent, he was mortified. Mortified, mort means death. He, practically speaking, he wanted to die. So he was a high-class person, he wasn't going to commit suicide. But he felt like that. He felt, be better if I died. And he had no inclination to be the king. So we also sometimes feel like this. When we feel that we've done something wrong and we think that other people have suffered because I've done something wrong, we may want to just die. Just run away. Let me hide under a rock. Let me run away from my service. So Mars Yudhisthira, I mean, one reason this was such a big problem, it wasn't just that Mars Yudhisthira was sad but that the whole purpose of the war was so Maharaj Yudhisthira could guide the, the world. And he wasn't willing to do it. So you, you set something up for somebody to do some service, and then when it comes time to do it, no, I don't want to. I'm too fallen. I can't do it. Now just imagine you're going to have a big festival. You spend a whole lot of money. 
and thousands and thousands of people sacrificed their time and their energy for months and months and months and months and months. And you finally set something up, and then the main person who's supposed to take the responsibility says, no, I quit. I can't do it. I'm too fallen. I commit too many offenses. I'm just simply an offensive person. I quit. So how much disturbance that's going to be? It's going to be a huge disturbance. Everybody's going to be disturbed. The whole purpose is is ruined. So it was very important that Maharaj Yudhisthira not only do his service, but do his service with enthusiasm. You know, it's it's not just, okay, he's supposed to sit on the throne and, you know, okay, let's do this, let's do this, let's do this. But he's supposed to do it with with a feeling of enthusiasm, with a feeling of happiness, that this is my service to Krishna. Uh, this is the way that, that I'm going to please Krishna. I'm going to please all the devotees. One is supposed to do one's service happily. But we find many instances where Krishna is asking his devotees, are you happy? Are you happy in your service? So the Maharaj Yudhisthira was to do his service happily, joyfully. And therefore everybody was concerned. So Vyasadeva is concerned, all the great rishis are concerned, Krishna is concerned. And we find he's reading the histories. Ittihasahai. He's getting evidences from the histories. He's hearing from Vyas, he's hearing from Krishna, and he's still morose. So why is this? So Prabhupada is exploring in the purport what's happening. And one could say, well, is there something wrong with Krishna? Right, here it said, Krishna is adbhuta karmana. Adbhuta is wonderful, karmana is work. Krishna does wonderful work. Just by Krishna's willing, things happen. So how is it that hearing instruction from Krishna, Yudhisthira is not pacified? Does that mean there's something wrong with Krishna? No. Prabhupada's saying here, actually Krishna has done something more wonderful by his words not pacifying Yudhisthira. Because normally that's impossible. Why? Because Krishna want, he has another mission. Just like the battle of Kurukshetra may not be clear. You may say, well, Duryodhana's not massacring the citizens. He's not torturing the citizens. Why do it? It's more subtle. And in the same way, what's happening here is more subtle. Krishna wants Bhishma Dev to be glorified over himself. Now, that's hard for us to understand because most of us aren't like that. Most of us want ourselves to be glorified over others even people that we love very much. The wife is thinking, I want to show that I'm better than my husband. The husband is showing, I want to, is thinking, I want to show that I'm better than my wife. You know, it's rare that somebody is so non-envious that they're actually willing and, and enthusiastic that somebody else would be glorified over them, that somebody would be better than them. You know, if you have a group of kids and you say, oh, this child has done better than everybody else, so all the other children become envious. What do you mean they've done better than me? I've done better. What about what I did? I did this thing. How can you say this person? If, if you'll notice that in our human relations, as soon as one person is glorified, then other people will start glorifying themselves. But I did this, I did that, I did this. And if you notice our mind, as soon as someone's glorified, how quickly do we start thinking, well, what about what I did? Hey, nobody's noticing me. So, but Krishna is so non-envious that he's always wanting the jiva to be glorified over himself. Krishna goes into the background 
Uh, the envious living entity, they want to be in the front. But Krishna goes into the back, so much so that many times Krishna becomes invisible. So Krishna wanted Bhishma Dev to be glorified over himself. He wanted that people would say, Bhishma could do something that even Krishna couldn't do. Of course, he did this with Arjuna also. He didn't take out weapons. And not only that, there was something else going on here. There was something else going on on the platform of Rasa. That Krishna loves Bhishma Dev, and he wanted Bhishma Dev to die satisfied. So this, of course, is all of our goals. We all would like to die satisfied. We'd like to die thinking, yes, what I wanted to achieve, I have achieved. Of course, materially, that doesn't happen very much. Materially, whenever you die, a materialistic person is always going to be lamenting about something. Something undone or something misdone, which is why we take birth again. Oh, if only I could fix that. But Krishna wanted Bhishma Dev to die satisfied, and therefore he wanted Bhishma Dev to see that Maharaj Yudhisthira was on the throne happily. And he wanted Bhishma Dev to feel that he was the cause of that. I mean, after all, Bhishma Dev had fought on the wrong side, and he could also have regrets. So if Bhishma Dev could feel, by my instruction, Maharaj Yudhisthira is happily taking up his service, Maharaj Yudhisthira is ruling with happiness. That would give so much pleasure to Bhishma. And also, Maharaj Yudhisthira going to get instructions from Bhishma Dev, that would give an opportunity for all of the Pandavas and Krishna himself to come before Bhishma because Bhishma was left on the battlefield. And Bhishma's situation is almost, not almost, it's inconceivable. So he had this benediction, he could die whenever he wanted. And therefore, although he was full of arrows, he didn't die. Because he didn't want to die until he saw that Yudhisthira was enthroned, and not only enthroned, but happily taking up his service with enthusiasm. So he was waiting for that. And on another level, Bhishma, of course, wanted to be with Krishna, just like all of us. We're all hoping that at the time we leave our body, we can leave our body in a holy place, we can leave our body with devotees having kirtan. We can leave our body looking at the form of the Lord. Maybe we've even fantasized about what different situations we'd like to leave our body and how we'd like to be. Like uh, you all know that not that long ago, Ayindra left his body in Vrindavan, and people speculated about why Krishna arranged that he was alone. But he had said about 20 years previously, he said, you know, I don't want people around me when I leave my body. I'd like to be just alone, just me and Govardhan. And that, of course, he wasn't at Govardhan. He was with his Govardhan, Sheila. But we may have our desire how we want to leave our body. And the devotee always wants to leave their body with Krishna. So Krishna, knowing that, that Bhishma wanted Krishna personally there, he wanted to arrange some situation that there was an excuse to be there. And Maharaj Yudhisthira needing counseling and needing help was such a good excuse. So this were all the purposes of the Lord. And Bhishma Dev was able to pacify Maharaj Yudhisthira, at which point Yudhisthira became enthused. Bhishma Dev was able to die with transcendental happiness, full of the rasa of his relationship with Krishna and the Pandavas. And then Maharaj Yudhisthira was able to reign over the earth for 33 years, after which Maharaj Parikshit took charge. And we were able to have a world for many years where people had a good opportunity 
for spiritual advancement and that set the example of what a leader should do and what a leader should be. Now, it's, it's also interesting, Nara Yudhisthira is a pure devotee of Krishna. He's not really experiencing lamentation on a material platform. And we see the surrender of a devotee like Maharaj Yudhisthira, and, and Bhishma also, that they're giving themselves to the Lord, use me as you like. Really, their pleasure is having Krishna use them. Even if the way Krishna's using them is to instill in them a, a so-called feeling of lamentation and regret and low self-esteem and depression. Even if Krishna is using them to lie on a bed of arrows. That they're willing to be used in any way to further the story of the Lord and the pastimes of the Lord and the purpose of the Lord. Whatever will make Krishna happy. So what's making Krishna happy here is moving on all these people from one body to the next, 640 million people. And according to Bhishma, all of those people didn't go to another material body. They all went to the spiritual world, having died in the presence of the Lord. So giving liberation to 640 million people, having an emperor who was not only kind on a physical and subtle platform, but also helped people spiritually, and having this incredible rasa and story with Bhishma Dev and the Pandavas, because ultimately it's all about the Lord's Leela. So these were all the purpose of the Lord, the internal purposes and the external purposes. And the devotees like Yudhisthira and Bhishma, they're willing to play any part. They're willing to play any part. I was recently in a drama in Mayapur of the story of Bharat Maharaj. And the devotee who played Bharat and the devotee who played Bharat's brother were actually brothers. But in this drama... Bart Maharaj's brother, actually his half-brother, was very cruel to Bart. If you remember the story from the Bhagavatam, the half-brothers, they gave up educating Bart, and then they stuck him out in a field to guard the field against wild pigs. They didn't take care of him very nicely. They didn't even feed him very good food. So the devotee who was playing Judd Bart's stepbrother, he didn't want to play the part. He said, this is not me. I'm, I'm not a cruel, hateful person. It's very hard for me to play this part. But for the sake of the drama, somebody has to play the bad guys. I remember when we used to play the Ramayana and Lokamangala used to play Ravana. He was such a good Ravana. Such a good Ravana. And if, if Ravana isn't believable, if, if you don't see that Ravana is really evil and believable, you can't enter into the drama. You know, if Ravana becomes some kind of a comic fa- character or a wimpy character then why will you care? Why will you be rooting for the monkeys? You know, why will you be hoping that Sita gets rescued? You can't enter into the bhav. You can't enter into the emotions. So to have a story, there has to be protagonist and antagonist. There has to be conflict. There has to be angst. You know, I remember in college trying to write a drama and my teacher said to me, it doesn't work because there's no conflict. And so the devotees, to give pleasure to the Lord, they're willing to play whatever role the Lord wants. You know, we may think, oh, I'll be, I'll be in the drama as long as I can play the good guys. Or I'll be in the drama as long as you know I can wear a beautiful costume. But then you don't have a drama. So 
And I remember when I was teaching nursery school and we were doing a drama of Princess Krishna kidnaps Rukmini. And my daughter was three then. She really wanted to play Rukmini and instead she got the part of Rukmi. And she was disappointed for years. Oh, I had to play Rukmi instead of Rukmini. But this is the actual surrender of the devotee. Whatever part Krishna wants me to play, even if the part Krishna wants me to play causes other people to criticize me. I mean, Bhishma could be criticized. In fact, he is criticized. Why did you fight for Duryodhana? Just because he maintained you. Or what to speak of Yudhisthira. Yudhisthira who gambles away. What gambler gambles away his own wife to the enemy? basically gambles his wife into prostitution. What, what gambler, even the worst gamblers in Las Vegas, do they, would they gamble away their wife? They gamble their brothers into slavery. And Yudhisthira was Dharmaraj, of all people. Dharmaraj wouldn't do such a thing. So why did he do that? It was his service. Because people can say, well, if Maharaj Yudhisthira became bewildered, then what to speak of me? I don't have a chance. If Maharaj Yudhisthira Dharmaraj became bewildered to that extent, then I certainly will be bewildered. How can I even suggest for a moment that I could possibly gamble and not be bewildered? So we find that when Yudhisthira was doing these things, when he's apparently depressed, he's not depressed. Because he's working in Krishna's plan, because he's working in harmony with Krishna, because as Prabhupada says, super soul, it's, it's desiring that he not be appeased by these instructions. And Yudhisthira is working in harmony with Krishna. As soon as you're working in harmony with Krishna, Krishna is full of ananda. Then you're also going to be full of ananda. You can say, well, wait a minute, I thought you said he was depressed. But ananda takes many different forms. Ananda is not boring. Ananda is not all just, oh, ananda. It has varieties. We can see even in this world, people don't just watch happy movies where everyone is dancing on the tables. People also watch movies that are sad, that are scary. People watch movies and read books that bring in them a whole variety of emotions. And all those emotions are causes of happiness. People will say, oh, I love that movie. It was so scary. What a great movie. Well, there's, there's some ananda. That's a reflection, of course, because materially even our so-called happiness is suffering. But spiritually, as described so wonderfully by Rupa Goswami in the Nectar of Devotion in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, there's a whole variety of emotions. So this emotion that Maharaj Yudhisthira was feeling, this uh, depression and then this freedom and, and happiness upon hearing from Bhishma Dev or the emotions that Bhishma Dev was feeling to instruct Maharaj Yudhisthira all of these are all varieties of Ananda because they're all in harmony with Krishna so we are also part of Krishna's story we shouldn't think that this is just oh this applies to Maharaj Yudhisthira and what does it have to do with me We're all part of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's movement. Therefore, we're all participating in Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Leela. It's not that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Leela only takes place when he's personally on the planet. Which is also the Leela of the Holy Name, who's non-different from Krishna. 
The holy name has his own pastimes. And the way we find happiness is by gracefully and happily submitting to whatever role we're meant to play, however we're meant to move the story forward. And then one may say, well, I can only do that when I know the whole story. Well, that's actually not a fact. The story is much more exciting if you don't know how it's going to turn out and if you don't exactly know what role you're playing. Then there's a sense of adventure and a sense of excitement if one chooses to see it that way. This is the question. Do we choose to see it that way? Do we make the choice, as Bhaktivinoda Thakur says very nicely, let's see if I can pull up that quote, do we make the choice to exalt in Krishna's pastimes? Do we say, yes, I, I am going to find my happiness, my source of happiness, is going to be whether or not I'm cooperating with Krishna. That's going to be my source of happiness. I'm not going to find happiness from anything else. I'm going to find happiness not from my circumstances, but from to what extent I can interpret everything, that I'm part of Krishna's pastimes. I'm part of Krishna's pastimes. I'm part of Krishna's pastimes. And if we do that, then there's no misery even in this world. As Balabhacharya wrote, Shustir Maduram. Even the creation is full of sweetness. And as Prabhupada writes in the story of Rikasura, that one, the devotee sees everything in the world as happily situated. That the materialists see things as very aggressive. The materialists think, oh, this person's doing this to me. I'm doing this to this person. You know, who's winning? Who's attacking me? And the devotee sees everything is part of Krishna's story. And I am participating in Krishna's story. Uh, I found this quote by Bhaktivinoda, a very wonderful quote. This is from Jaiva Dharma, part four. He says, the leelas of Sri Krishna are unlimited and variegated. Hence, this material world is also another of his many unique activities. The principle of variegated leelas is kept intact. Not a single type of leela can be rejected. So Bhaktivinoda Thakur is saying that this material world is also one kind, one part of Krishna's leelas. And we can't reject it. He says, whatever the leela, the participants assisting the Lord may have to accept many hardships and pain, which is exactly what's happening to Yudhisthira and Bhishma. Sri Krishna is the Purusha, the supreme enjoyer and absolute masters. All the participants in paraphernalia are fully under the control and they are the working tools of the Supreme Creator. Now here's the key that Bhaktivinoda gives. He says, in fully surrendering oneself to the sweet will of the Supreme Lord, it is only natural that one may have to accept adversities also. If finally this material adversity turns into an auspicious state that is far from miserable, then why ultimately should one call it adversity? On the transcendental platform, the tribulations of the jiva while trying to satisfy the Lord in his pastimes are by all accounts pleasurable. So in other words, this difficulty Mara's Yudhisthira is having and Bhishma is having, because they're doing this in harmony with Krishna to assist Krishna, it is, according to Bhaktivinoda, by all accounts pleasurable. So what is the problem? Bhaktivinoda goes on. Yet the conditioned soul by misuse of his free will denies himself 
The exaltation one experiences whilst directly assisting Sri Krishna in his transcendental pastimes. So it's saying that the reason we're not experiencing transcendental bliss, not just transcendental bliss, anandam buddhivardhanam, Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati in commenting on this says, unlimited bliss. So Bhakti Yuno says, we are, by misuse of our free will, we're denying ourselves this exaltation. What does he go on to say? Instead, he embraces Maya, who gives him only acute harassment. If anyone is to blame for this dilemma, it is the jiva and definitely not Krishna. So what is the, the difference what makes the difference between whether I see things as Krishna's Leela and I find the exaltation of being part of Krishna's Leela or whether I see things as a world of conflict, right? like the way Darwin saw everything. Darwin saw everything as survival of the fittest and conflict and trying to push everyone out. So do I see everything like that? And then I'm simply suffering. It's a question of how I choose to interpret my life. We tend to think that our interpretations of life are life. You know, we all hear the philosophy that we have imperfect senses and we make mistakes and we're illusioned, but we don't think it applies to ourselves. And we think, however I'm interpreting my life, that is my life. There's no other way to interpret my life but that. It's obvious that this is what it means. It's obvious that this is the reason for this. It's obvious that this person has such and such motive, and therefore I am justified in feeling pain. And if we say to somebody, well, you could interpret your life in such a way that it wouldn't be painful, they say, oh, I don't have the right to suffer? (laughs) I just recently had a conversation like that with someone. I said, you're interpreting your life in such a way as to bring you disappointment and happiness. And they said, oh, you're saying I don't have the right to be disappointed? So we all have the right to interpret our life in such a way that it brings disappointment and pain and anguish. And we all have the right to interpret our life in the way that brings happiness. And this is such a a strange concept to us. We think the way I'll find happiness is for the externals of my life to change. The way I'll find happiness is for other people to treat me differently. The way I'll find happiness is for my body to work better, for my mind to work better. No, that's not the way to find happiness. So we can be assured that Maharaj Yudhisthira was exulting in the pastimes of the Lord and experienced transcendental happiness as he contributed to the Lord's Leela in this remarkable way, which gives all of us a clue in our own life of how to deal with such situations. And this is throughout the day having this interpretation. How do we have this interpretation? Very simple. Very simple. I am Krishna's servant. And my goal is prema. My goal is love of God. It's a very simple thing, very simple mantra. I am a soul, I am a servant of Krishna, and my goal is love of God. Now how can I interpret what's happening to me as Krishna's will to bring me closer to love? And how can I respond to what's happening to me as a servant of Krishna who is trying to increase love for Krishna in myself and in the other people around me? And if we do that, we'll find that any situation, even externally the most wretched situation, is a source for exaltation. So we all have ample opportunity to practice this today, in the next hour, in the next minutes, in the next year, in the next week. It's really something to do at every moment. 
It's not, well, I'm going to plan, so I'll do this when I'm an advanced devotee. Oh, I can't do this now. I'm not advanced enough. No. It's our natural situation to do that. Even the very beginner, even the most fallen person can say, wait a minute, okay, I'm a soul. I'm Krishna's servant. My goal is love of God. If I'm Krishna's servant and my goal is love of God, that means my master has engineered this situation. Like we read here in Maharaj Yudhisthira, Krishna engineered it. Krishna engineered it to the point of not allowing Yudhisthira to feel happy by his own instructions, by Krishna's instructions, by the Itihasas, by Vyasadeva. Krishna's arranged my situation. Krishna may even have arranged my situation to the point of somebody who on the external platform is giving me grief. But I am his servant, and my goal is love of God. How does my master want me to achieve love of God in this situation in which he's put me? What can I do now to move towards love of God? And if we do that, then immediately we become happy, no matter who we are and what we are. So to resolve to do this, and you know, even if we do that for only one minute in a day, then we can rejoice in that. And the next day, maybe we can do it for three minutes. And if some days we forget, then again we can try. Let me do this for two minutes. Let me do it however much. And because it's our natural position as we practice, practice, as Krishna says in the 12th chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Abhyas Yoga. As we do this practice yoga, because it's our natural position, eventually it becomes exactly who we are and what we are without endeavoring. After a while it's not the, okay, who am I? I'm Krishna, sir. What is my goal? After a while it becomes just naturally what we do. Automatically, automatically, spontaneously. That is Raganuga Bhakti. And how to get there? By making a deliberate attempt. So, thank you. Do we have questions on this system also, or how does this work? Oh, Hari Bo. become Krishna's puppet. As I said, a simple formula. Adwaita Charya gives this nice verse. Chaitanya Radasamui, Chaitanya Radas, Chaitanya Radasamui, Tanra Dasyarajas. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu says, Jivera Swarupaya Krishnera Nityadasha. So I accept this at least in principle. I accept it at least theoretically. I am a soul who is Krishna's servant. That's who I am. I am not you know, Mr. Patel, I am not Mr. Smith, I am not Miss this, I, I am Krishna's servant, that's who I am. And then what is my goal? If I am this body, my goal is sense gratification, and then I'm Maya's puppet. If I'm Krishna's servant, then my goal is Premadan, the, the wealth of Prem. That is Prema Pumarta Mahan, Pumarta is the supreme goal. So I practice that. I practice that. 
at first it's hard. I find myself being Maya's puppet, and then I catch myself, and I say, oh, oh, okay, I'm lamenting, I'm disappointed, I'm miserable. Oh, that must mean that I'm misidentifying who I am, and I'm misidentifying my goal. I'm thinking I'm a material being who has a goal of sense gratification. And when you catch that, you go, okay, I'm a spiritual being, I'm a servant of Krishna, my goal is love. And maybe that only lasts for a few seconds. And then again, you think you're a materialistic being with the goal of sense gratification. But those few seconds are valuable. What does it say? Better at one moment of full consciousness. And then you build on that. Instead of lamenting about all the times we're Maya's puppet, rejoice in the, in the, even if it's only a second where I'm acting as Krishna's puppet. And how wonderful that is. That's such a wonderful experience when I'm acting in harmony with Krishna. And then by relishing that taste again and again and again, I'll want to do it more and more and more and more and more. And then I'll increase it. There's pain. There's, it's, it's very painful being a Maya's puppet. And as you're saying, there's great joy in being Krishna's. But sometime even in that transition, the great Acharyas like Bhaktivinoda uh, Kaur is praying, I'm a confirmed servant of lust. Worldly desires are awakening in my heart. The noose of fruitive work is, is tightening. When will I wake up and, and cast aside lust far away? And when will you manifest yourself in my heart? Even the devotee feels a type of, of transcendental pain. So sometimes that can maybe be um, confusing or difficult to decipher. Is this Mundane pain or, or, or transcendental. Oh, it's it's transcendental because if you've if you've hurt somebody that you really love, I think we've all done this. I think we've all had a situation where we offended somebody who was very important to us in our life. That the relationship with this person was just of paramount importance to us, and yet we offended them. So the process of asking for forgiveness is part of re-establishing that relationship, and therefore it's part of a sweetness. So if I go to that person I've offended, and if it's genuine, you know, if it's not genuine, that's something else. But if genuine, genuine means that I really deeply understand how I've offended them. I'm not just saying, I'm sorry, (laughs) so that I can go on offending them and they're going to, you know, excuse it. But to really understand... And when you really understand how we've offended Krishna, it's very painful. It's extremely painful. But it's also extremely, extremely sweet. Because as soon as you understand that, the relationship is reestablished. Immediately. Immediately. Because if I understand how I've offended Krishna, I am connecting with Krishna. I'm empathizing with Krishna. And as soon as I'm doing that, I have yoga. And as soon as I have yoga, I have unlimited bliss. Unlimited bliss. So it's not just, oh, I'm a materialistic rascal fool. But if you, if you actually see that, as soon as you see that, you also instantly have yoga. You can't see it without, you can't actually see it without having a connection with Krishna. If you're just lamenting and you're feeling miserable, then that's, that's not worth much. That's just a mode of ignorance. It doesn't really have any value.
Mataji. Thank you. My name is Jana Spriha. Thank you for a very, very nice class. I really enjoy a class in Bhakti and not a Sanskrit class. Uh, my question is, how do we to make advancement without remaining enthusiastic? So I, what's the secret to always be enthusiastic about pushing forward in our Krishna consciousness? Well, we're not going to be always enthusiastic until we're above the modes of nature. It's not possible. Not possible. As long as we're influenced by passion and ignorance, our enthusiasm will go up and down. When we're in the mode of goodness, we'll be enthusiastic. When we're in the mode of passion, we'll be somewhat enthusiastic. And when we're in the mode of ignorance, we'll be unenthusiastic. Therefore, kanista, someone who's not steady. So how does one come to the... Basically, what you're asking is how to come to the platform of steadiness. So part of that is being neutral to the workings of the modes, not taking it seriously. That when your mind is up, you don't get attached to it, and when your mind is down, you don't lament. This is nicely explained in the purport to Bhagavad Gita 14.22. That you, you, you're neutral. You don't, as Krishna says in that verse, you don't hate illumination, attachment, or delusion when they appear, or long for them when they disappear. You realize that the modes alone are active. You don't take it seriously. You don't think it's yourself. You don't identify with it. You don't identify with the mind or with the modes. And what does Krishna say? You go on even when you don't feel enthusiastic. That's the real test of, of love. That's why in the marriage vows it says for better or for worse. If I only you know, invest in my marriage and stay in my marriage when it's good, then it's sense gratification. It's not love. So love is when I, I put out the effort when I don't feel like it. And in fact, putting out the effort when I don't feel like it is much more a measure of love and is much more a key to advancing than when I feel like it. And if I do that, if I do that, then I will go above the modes and be able to have genuine enthusiasm all the time. Now, how do I do that? I don't do that just by willpower. And I think that this is a big mistake that people make. People think the way that I'm going to remain steady in my enthusiastic action despite the ups and downs of the modes is by the will of the mind. But the mind gets tired. You can only put out willpower for a certain amount of time. There's a lot of empirical experiments about this kind of thing. You know, I was just telling my family this story, how they did this experiment where they had a room where there was one box of chocolate chip cookies and one box of radishes and they had pumped the smell of baking chocolate chip cookies into the room. And then they told some people, you can eat as many cookies as you want. And they told other people, you're not allowed to eat cookies, you can only eat radishes. Then they took the cookie eaters and the radish eaters, and they gave them a puzzle to solve that was unsolvable. And they wanted to see how long they would try to solve this unsolvable puzzle before they gave up. So the cookie eaters tried twice as long as the radish eaters. So why is that? The radish eaters had already used up a lot of their self-control on eating radishes. And they didn't have that much self-control left to try to solve the unsolvable puzzle. So we have, just like you have a limit on your muscle power, after you work hard for a while, you get tired and you have to rest. So we have a limit on our mental determination self-control power. And if we try to be determined all the time before we've reached the stage of nishta, just with mental determination and willpower, we'll become exhausted. 
And then the devotee thinks, oh, I can't do it. I failed. And the devotee then either accepts that there's time of failure or it becomes discouraged altogether and gives up. So that's not how it's done. The way it's done is by association. You actually borrow from the enthusiasm of people who are more advanced than you by being in their association. You're actually reflecting. You're getting a shadow or a reflection of their enthusiasm that keeps you going, not with willpower, not with willpower, but with affection and attachment. So therefore, the door to liberation is the association of the great souls. And that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be in the same physical room with them, touching them. It means that you try to imbibe their mood by meditating on their songs, by meditating on their activities, by reading their books. And that's the source of our enthusiasm. Trying to do it through willpower will fail. And eventually, once we surpass the modes, then one is steady in one's enthusiasm. Because then it's not that the modes are not active. (laughs) It's not that the modes are still there. But again, it's a choice of interpretation. And I'm not interpreting these modes as being myself. that's also you're talking about about willpower in the mind and the mind will get tired you can't you can't maintain it if, if that's going to be you know you can build up your capacity for self-control and austerity just like you can build up your muscle capacity so by gradually gradually and back you know Takura talks about this by gradually gradually taking on more austerities and more self-control, you can build up your capacity for self-control. But that's not ultimately how we're doing it. That's a kartahamiti manite mentality. And it's, it's really opposed to the whole thing. It's, it's, it's not really how we're doing it. We're, we're doing it very differently. We're doing it by surrender, not through, not by being a controller. It's, it's not about how can I figure out how to control the material energy to get it to do what I want. So it's, it's not about that. It's how can I let go? How can I let go and cooperate? How can I use my will to, to cooperate? I'm not trying to choreograph the dance. I'm trying to respond to the dance and play my role in the dance under the direction of the choreographer. At the same time, it is a fact that if you engage your senses in Krishna's service, your mind and your feelings have a tendency to follow. 
Therefore, Krishna says, you know, best thing is love me. If you can't do that, do a bias yoga, which is what we're talking about. And if you can't do that, just work for me. So just work for me means that I'm doing something with my body, even though I don't feel it. Of course, it's interesting because Prabhupada talks about the fallen devotee in uh, 331 and one other place I can't think of right now. I think it's 334 where he says that one should do some work for Krishna, even if one can't follow all the rules and regulations, one should do some work for Krishna, and that work should be with love. So even for the devotee who can't follow all the rules, Prabhupada is asking for love. He's asking for some affection. And really our process is done, our enthusiasm has gotten through affection. So have affection for somebody. You know, have affection for your guru, have affection for some some devotee. I have to have some feeling that I want to serve this person. That's much more the key is like, okay, I'm going to act enthusiastic. I'm going to force myself through the mind. It can't work all the time. And it's it's not what's going on. It's really, that's the antithesis of of what we're trying to be. Well, thank you. Well, anything forced is artificial. Now, to some extent, when you're a beginner, there has to be some force. There has to be some artificial force when you're a beginner. That's true with everything. You know, if somebody wants to get rid of a heroin addiction, they may have to be put into a treatment center where no heroin is available. But that forces the antithesis of love. It, it just It's the opposite of bhakti yoga. It's completely the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. So even forcing ourself is not... It's, we're going in the opposite direction. So you may have to do that in the beginning, but that, should, that stage shouldn't last very long because if it lasts very long, you're going to go to hard-heartedness which is exactly the opposite of bhakti. Bhakti is, is a melting heart. So, yeah, it, it, maybe it, there's almost definitely for, for most beginners, some force and some just brute willpower is required, but it's, it's actually very dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. Just like if someone's severely injured, a shot of morphine may be required. But morphine is very dangerous. You, know, you don't want to take too many shots of morphine. It's not, then you're going to get sicker rather than well. So as far as possible, force should not be used. It's the, force is the means of the demons. It's exactly, exactly the opposite of bhakti. Like Prabhupada says, why are there two things, rape and love? So Krishna doesn't rape, and that's. Nor should we be raping ourselves. We're not, you know. Love Krishna! Come on, do it now! Ah. <laughs> be enthusiastic! Do it right now, or I'll shoot you! I mean, Hare Krishna.
Okay, we've gone over an hour here. Yes, we So thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. I've never given a class like this before. It's quite an experience. Well, thank you for logging on, all of you in many parts of the world, because Hawaii doesn't comport with very many other time zones. So, thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to uh, speak on Bhagavatam. Jai. Hare Krishna. Thank you. Hare Krishna.